I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is artist, educator, and cultural provocateur, Tim Guthrie. Tim Guthrie is a visual artist and experimental filmmaker. His work is held in several museum collections and has been exhibited and shown at museums and festivals across the world. International recognition has included the 2017 Humanitarian Award from the Global Independent Film Awards, among others. His most recent film is the award-winning documentary Missing Peace. The documentary details Guthrie's journey to find peace after the death of his wife Beth from complications of Parkinson's disease and dystonia. Tim has presented his multimedia art around the world, including at the Sorbonne in Paris, France, and has been awarded residences and fellowships at Blue Mountain Centre, Vermont Studio Centre, Hall Farm, International Sculpture Centre, and the Nevada Arts Council, among others. Tim teaches art and design at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Your work often involves a commentary on social issues. Uh, so before we talk about some of those projects like Museum of Alternative History, Rendition, and Art Giveaway, for example, tell me why your art leans into social commentary. You know, when I first noticed it was doing that, um, it wasn't until a decade or so after I'd actually started doing that kind of work. Um I always thought that there was just this tangent where, you know, social justice or politics or whatever kept creeping into my work. But when I went back and started looking at it, I realized it's been there for a long time. Um, it's just that my work changes pretty frequently. The content, the concept is the most important aspect and my style and medium often change depending on the concept. And one of the earliest of the, the larger ones, um, came out of my interest in the United States nuclear testing program. I used to live in Nevada. I've been to the Nevada test site. I've been on Frenchman Flat. I stood at, right at the edge of Sedan Crater and all of these crazy things. And, and a show came out of that called Nuclear Dichotomies. And as I kept pursuing that kind of work, or, or as I got more upset with the, want uh, <laughs> to put it in a polite way, the inequalities of, of things. Um, that had to do with basically what politicians were doing, the kind of laws they were passing, the, the people with the money, how they were spending it to get the people they wanted in positions of power, etc. Uh, it just became a, a bigger part of my work. And there are some that are very thoughtful and pretty complex, and there are some that are very juvenile and very silly. Um, so that kind of runs the gamut, but it is there frequently in my work for the past couple of decades, I guess. So maybe talk about nuclear dichotomies as a project, unpack and illustrate that a little bit for us. Because I lived in Nevada, I mean, actually, I was even before that, when I was um, in graduate school, I lived near um, Hanford in Washington. Um, I was in, actually in northern Idaho, um, the Hanford nuclear power plant. I got really interested in the the pollution, the cleanup, and all the issues that were going on there. Um, I mean, I was one of those kids that grew up, you'd hear about, you know, atomic bombs and things like that, and it just seemed so surreal and bizarre that I was always curious about it, even as a kid, but suddenly to find myself near a place like Hanford, and then to end up with a job in Nevada where um, the Nevada test site is and all of those kind of things, I just got more deeply involved in research um, that had to do with um, the nuclear testing program. So I was doing work in Nevada 
So there was a project that was happening there. They used a, a ram. So that was the you know the iconic uh, image for uh, Nevada. So everybody else did these, you know, a sunset on the side of the ram or whatever. They're all kind of nice little uh, simple pieces. Um, mine was the ram getting blown up by a nuclear explosion going through its belly off the top. It was controlled by a computer. Lights went off. It was <laughs> way over the top. And I, I think um, I got in trouble for that one, to be honest. Everybody wanted something very simple and um, and they did not want any nuclear history to be a part of that project. And and as I kind of questioned why there was a pushback and started to understand it better, um, that's kind of what led to the Nuclear Dichotomies Project. I um, didn't realize at the time I was going to be moving to Omaha, but when the job at Creighton came up, I just kind of brought all of that research and history with me and then um, pursued it here in Omaha back when the Bemis Underground still existed. I think it would really be worth exploring why it is and how you have found society's desire for the sweet and the maudlin in art that doesn't push us too far because you mentioned that you had maybe offended some people by <laughs> pushing that particular um, yeah. ram through its uh, uh, nuclear explosion experience. <laughs> but, um, but I think before we get there, maybe it's worth going back a little bit and asking, how did you first come across art as a practice and thinking to yourself, I want to be an am an artist? It had happened for the most banal of reasons that you can think of. I mean, I was a little kid and I could draw and I, it came out nice and everybody said, oh, that's beautiful. And I said, hey, I can do this. And I just kept doing it and kept getting better at it. So the unusual thing is I never really wanted to be an artist. In fact, when I went to college, I was trying to think of anything else to declare than art. I mean, there's kind of, what, maybe three things that jump into people's mind if you say you're an artist and none of them are positive. They either think you're delusional, like, oh, you're an artist, uh, or they think you're just poor, oh, you don't got no money and you can't sell anything, blah, blah, blah. Or they think you're, you know, arrogant. Oh, you're an artist. Oh, you're an arrogant self-setting, <laughs> whatever. People don't, I mean, some people obviously think of something positive when they hear artists, but it felt at the time like that wasn't very common. It was more negative responses. Even now, when people ask me what I do, I tell them I'm a professor. I don't tell them I'm an artist. And that's for lots of reasons, actually, because I actually left art for a while, and it's been difficult to kind of go back. Um, but yeah, the short answer would be I got into it for a really boring reason. I just, I could draw really well, and, and that was kind of fun to see cool things appear on a piece of paper. How old were you, and what was, was pretty, it? What you, yeah, so how old were you? I was pretty young. I mean, I, I noticed it when I was in elementary school, certainly, and um, in junior high, I think I started winning awards and things. You know, I mean, junior high and high school, you win those silly kind of awards. But yeah, I was doing kind of, you know, that photorealism type stuff when I was in high school. Not that level of realism, but that kind of thing. But I quickly got bored of drawing and then I started painting and then I quickly got bored of painting and it just kind of everything that I would take on, I seemed limited. So I kept doing something else and, and somewhere in there, probably, I guess by the time I was in graduate school, that's when I realized I didn't care what medium or what style. There's a big, um, um, I don't want to call it a need. I'm trying to think of a better word for it. Most artists feel that if they do the same style of work or the same medium, or if it's all about process or if it's all about whatever it is, that that's the key to kind of branding yourself, to getting recognizable, et cetera. I never really gave a <laughs> I stopped myself <laughs> about um, branding myself. I didn't care. You know, I don't want to be thought of as a painter or a sculptor or a filmmaker or whatever. I just 
kind of just be an artist and do whatever. And, um, and there's pros and cons. I certainly understand. In fact, when I'm teaching students, I mean, I make sure they understand what the advantages are to being consistent. Um, but consistency was never my interest. Um, like I said, sometimes, certainly with content, with the goal of what I'm doing with my work, there's a consistency. But style and medium seems irrelevant to me. So, so I think it's worth talking about medium then because mm. you – you mentioned that it was the affirmation of an artistic talent that was a little more traditional in school, mm. the idea of drawing so, and, yeah. and that sort of thing. But I want to talk about what an experimental filmmaker is, given that's in your bio. But when did you and how did you encounter new media and new formats and new tools? And what were they? Given that probably now to us, those tools seem somewhat dated, but perhaps mm. at the time that you were exploring new media, it was probably quite advanced and avant-garde. Um, probably not super avant-garde because I'm sure there were a lot of people doing things like that. But for me, it was, I, I mean, I'd have to keep teaching myself new things all the time. Um, taught myself how to use a program called Maya. That was a complicated piece of software to understand just because I was doing some animations. That whole experimental thing came about because people were having problems classifying what I was doing because it sometimes would be kind of these weird video art pieces that weren't really films and sometimes they would be an actual film and um, sometimes they're documentaries sometimes they're whatever I'm just kind of all over the place even as a as a filmmaker but um but I think um as I started using computers to do more work um that's probably when people started labeling me kind of a new media artist or whatever but I know people that do much more sophisticated things with computers than I do <laughs> I just uh happen to use them when it makes sense. Whereas some people, that's their goal. They use computers and everything's going to be done with, you know, I, the show that's up right now, the Museum of Alternative History, there's 3D printing, there's video stuff, there's, uh, you know, a whole range of, of different things. And 3D printing is the one that is, is most common in this one. I started using 3D printing. I built my own 3D printer years ago. It was when MakerBot first did their little, and you know, you'd piece this thing together and whatever. You had to build the circuit board. You had to, you know, everything, um, which was pretty cool as a process to really understand a 3D printer. Um, but once I had access to better printers, then I started doing that kind of print. And then I started you know, just kind of exploring it because the technology was interesting. One of the reasons that I change, I, I, I like to say that the reason that I changed media and styles because of the concept, um, which is true. But I also sometimes do it just because I'm bored with whatever medium I happen to be using and I want to do something different. So to me, if I was doing the same thing over and over again, painting or just working on a certain kind of process or whatever it is, if I was just doing that over and over and over again, I would be bored to tears. To me, what's fun about doing art is that um, challenging part, the creative part. Um, and if I'm constantly learning something new or trying to solve a new problem, that's what's interesting to me. And uh, when I was painting and the reason I stopped painting was I wasn't being challenged creatively at all. I mean, I thought I was trying to do it by putting narratives into them or trying to do something different visually or doing, yeah, it's not really that <laughs> creative. It's a really, it's a dumb process painting a picture. It really is. <laughs> Although, not to go off on another, I guess I'm going to go off on a tangent. I might do a painting in the near future because I was explaining this to another person and, and um, they were not an artist, but they understood art, certainly. Um, they made a comment about those I don't know if these are still popular, but they were popular a year or two ago. Um, those coloring books for adults where it was a meditative process and they just colored as kind of a, really as a meditative process, not 
because they wanted the picture in the end or because, and I started thinking about that because my mind would wander. I get, I get bored so fast when I'm painting that my mind is on everything but what I'm doing, which felt like I must be doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but I've tried to get into more meditative type processes over the past few years. And I started thinking about that. What if I go back, do one more painting? I've got lots of oil paints left over. I've got the canvas. I've got, and I've got an idea of something that I might want to paint. And just instead of painting eight hours straight or doing whatever, just giving myself an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is every day to go into my studio, work on the painting, think of it as this meditative thing. And then when I get through that part of the process, stop and then just keep repeating it over and over again. And then if a painting comes out of it, great. And if it doesn't, that's okay. The idea of treating painting as something different um, might be good. So I went off on a tangent there, but. <laughs> is an experimental filmmaker and how do you consider yourself in 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 that realm i think um the reason experimental filmmaker um gets bandied about is because um like i said it's just hard to classify i think the reason that i i get seen as a new media artist so often is because it's hard to classify I me mean, it's like wait is he a painter is he a, i remember somebody um, because i've been doing more photos in the past in recent years than i have of anything else and I'm not I don't consider myself a photographer um, but that's what made sense for the process that I was going through at the time I was doing photographs and somebody approached a photographer and said something oh yeah Tim Guthrie's he's a really good photographer and his response was yeah and he's a hell of a painter she said he can paint <laughs> and that's kind of where it seems everybody is they know me in one area whatever I happen to be um, doing at that time but that whole experimental thing kind of happened because I was just experimenting. Some, some of the films weren't really films. They were weird cubes that just kind of revolved and, and light that changed. And it was all about light and perspective and whatever. In fact, it was the first real digital piece that I sold. People, people bought the actual digital file, not um, something else. I went ahead and made a print form so they had a nice little print that they could put on a wall. But it was really the... Um, the uh, uh, virtual piece that they purchased. 
sometimes there's enough narrative that it becomes a film. I did um, a handful of pieces, um, probably only one decent one, but where they were 52 seconds long. I think it's 52. Yeah, 52 seconds, which is the amount of film that the Lumiere brothers would have had in a reel. So when they were trying to shoot something, they would run out in 52 seconds and then have to reload and put something else in. If you look at a lot of those really old silent films and things, they're often, they are very short and you never see more than that 52 seconds. And there was a movement, I don't know, a good decade or so ago. It's probably happened several times, but the one I'm thinking of was more than a decade ago where a bunch of festivals popped up, you know, tell a story in 52 seconds. So I started making some of these weird, really, really short pieces. Um, but I approached them in a different way. So some people were just trying to tell a story in 52 seconds. I thought, all right, I'm going to do it visually where the audio doesn't sync up necessarily with um, the way a traditional film would more kind of like a symphony would play something over, you know, I do something weird like that or have an audio clip playing while the animation is going. So I think it's just that some of the pieces just seem so weird to so many people that they just called it experimental. Oh, I did one about J. Robert Oppenheimer when um, the one about Robert Oppenheimer was, um, there's a really famous thing where he quotes the Bhagavad Gita and they're asking him about that first test where I took that clip and reimagined it and kind of painted it rotoscope kind of frame by frame with other things on top. That one actually um, went all over the place. That was shown in a whole bunch of different places in Europe and Hiroshima. I went to Hiroshima during the nuclear dichotomies project based on that film being accepted into the Hiroshima Animation Festival, which was kind of odd because it was about atomic bombs and they <laughs> wanted to show it in uh, Hiroshima, which was interesting. Kind of weird experimental things. <laughs> so what is it then that appeals to you? You've moved through a career of producing art and creative forms. So what have you been trying to get at with your art? What are some of the issues or themes or concerns that you have? I used to, like I said before, I, I started drawing for the silliest of reasons. Like, hey, I can draw C-3PO and R2-D2, wee, <laughs> as a kid. And then I started thinking, all right, well, you know, what's the work that I find interesting when I see it? And what's the work that I'm doing? And then I thought, why am I just imitating a photo? So then I started thinking about other things. And, and as I became more politically aware, um, certainly in college, um, although it didn't really start seeping into my um, work right away then, um, as I became more politically aware, uh, more socially conscious about a lot of things, it started kind of landing in my work. Not, I don't know if it was really super conscious. It was just happening. And then when I realized I was doing it, I still thought of it as kind of this side, this, this different thread that was in the work. And then a decade in, I started looking at the work and, and realized almost everything that I was doing had some political thread, even if it was subtle. And I'm not naive. I know art doesn't change the world. It's art is art. It is what it is. But um, if I can make a, a statement or a comment with it, then it's more satisfying to me personally. Um, I know it's not always very popular <laughs> with other people. I had a friend that said, if I could paint like you, that's all I would ever do. And he was pissed at me because I wouldn't paint. <laughs> Um, and here I was stamping dollar bills with the Koch brothers' faces, you know, Charles and David Koch, and we call it Koch cash, and spending it different places. And so the people that liked my realist type work hated my conceptual stuff. And the people that liked my conceptual work were wondering, why do I ever bother to do the other stuff? I, you know, somebody told me, oh, what's really nice about your work is 
there's something for everybody to like. It's kind of the opposite. There's always something for somebody to be disgusted with. <laughs> so it's kind of funny because if somebody really likes my conceptual work, they don't think of me as a real conceptual artist because I do all this other stupid stuff. And the same thing with the people that like me as a painter or sculptor or whatever. They think, oh, you're doing this goofy barf bags. You know, that's not art. <laughs> and they're disgusted with me doing something like that. So um, I'm kind of another tangent, but it's just interesting to see how people respond to everything. And I ultimately, and I realize this is a really privileged position. I had discussions with other artists about this before. In your personal practice of artistic expression, do you feel liberated to do what you call stupid things? But Not just uh, what I call stupid, stupid things. Okay. <laughs> They're stupid things. So I, I, I would offer maybe... <laughs> Sending from, barf bags to the White House is, pretty, <laughs> is a pretty obnoxious. Well, okay. So let, let, let's have some examples then of, of what we might call something that you think of as stupid things. And, and I'll or ask you to explain that. Maybe, okay, juvenile. <laughs> so so we'll, we'll, we'll start with the barf bags, but then also maybe we can maybe move to the other end of the spectrum, which is um, maybe a project that... That has caused offense in some places, but from your point of view, was actually nothing more than a valid social commentary. Mm. So let's start with the barf bags and, and then we'll move on to another project. <laughs> yeah. So the, the barf bags came out about in a, in a very simple way. I used to actually collect those uh, barf bags that are in the back of airplane seats when you're flying somewhere. I wasn't collecting them on purpose. What happened was this is before iPhones and things like that. So I wouldn't have a sketchbook on me. I wouldn't have something that I was carrying at all times. Or if you're on an airplane, you can't get your you know, notebook out of the overhead compartment. So, But there'd be a barf bag back there and I could always draw on that. So I would just pull out a pen if I had an idea and scribble down ideas, a sketch on them, and then I'd just keep the bag. And that led to collecting more of them. And then um, one time, actually it was a previous election, it was one of um, back when Romney was running and I was um, drawing on bags back then. Well, when Trump was running, I started drawing on the barf bags and kind of fancy little type, you know, and I'd say, imagine a President Trump immediately barf here. <laughs> I said, it's okay. It's natural. That's what anybody should think if they imagine a President Trump. Sorry to make your show political, but, <laughs> and then um, I would do it more and more. And every time I was flying, I would leave him. And then he won the election. And then the next morning I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, I guess my little barf bag thing is still going. And then I decided to start buying them in like gross the boxes, you know, thousands of them at a time. I've printed at least 8,000 of these bags, maybe 9,000 at this point. And I would just give them to friends. They'd fly with them, et cetera. And then I started a Twitter account and I would tweet them at the president. And it's called, uh, the Twitter account is uh, Make America Barf. And you'll see it if it says uh, President Gibbon um, with his face, that's, that's the account. Um, so I would tweet these things out and it was just my way of venting more than anything. And again, very juvenile, but it ties to another an incredibly juvenile project that I did back when um, we declared war with Iraq under George W. Bush. And I tried to get a project going, um, but it all happened so fast that I was, I barely had it going and we were already attacking Iraq. And it, and again, I warned you, it's juvenile. I was buying massive boxes of urinal cakes that you, those little pink cakes you put in a urinal. I mean, the 50% of your population that's hearing this that <laughs> has used a urinal knows what I'm talking about. But for everybody else, these little uh, things that would go in a urinal to kind of kill germs and have this, well, supposedly a nice scent. I think they smell disgusting, but, <laughs> but at least kill the bad scent. <laughs> and I was carving the word war into all of them. And I was leaving them at the Supreme Court, State Supreme Court, the governor's mansions, the uh, 
um, um, senators' offices. I was putting him everywhere in, in the biggest government buildings that I could sneak him into. And uh, I got <laughs> a pretty interesting reaction from that. Um, so some were very kind of one-liner style juvenile projects like that. And then other ones, like I said, became much more. To the other end of the spectrum, maybe talk about art giveaway. So the art giveaway, that... I'm going to talk about two because there's a difference between the kinds of things that I would be doing. The art giveaway, as opposed to, say, Extraordinary Rendition, which was a, a different um, show. The art giveaway really was simply me wanting to get art, original artwork, into the hands of people that wanted to collect it, but were upset that the pieces were, well, I mean, they weren't expensive, but to them, they were expensive, right? I mean, not everybody's got a disposable income to spend hundreds of dollars on a piece of artwork. And I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, I think I'm just going to, and I've been, I'd been thinking about this for a long time. I just never did it of giving away one piece of artwork every day for the span of a year and year after year after year went by and I never did it. And then at the time when the whole 99% argument um, started being made more when um, the Occupy movement was happening, I thought, oh, you know what, maybe I'll go ahead and do this. And this will be the reason that will push me to it. And so I actually started giving away a piece and made an announcement on Facebook. And I just basically told people, you see an image posted, you claim it, it's yours. That simple. Ended up giving away like 500 pieces of art. So it was more than uh, a piece a day. Um, but it was kind of funny because a local gallery wanted to kind of show some of the work. And I said, well, you can, but I mean, this, this is all going away for free. He's like, that's okay. I just think it'd be fun to do. All right, we'd like to assist you in it, whatever. So I went ahead and did that. But what was happening both at the gallery, I remember somebody walking up to me. She was really excited and she wanted to pick something. And during the conversation, it was obvious she had a lot of money and she collects a lot of art. And I had to tell her, you don't get a piece of artwork. And she was really upset and offended. And I said, I'm sorry, this is really for people that don't you know, have original artwork that really want something and this is their opportunity and i don't think i told her anything about the 99 percent versus the one percent or whatever um but that is kind of what was happening anytime i found it was a lawyer who had money or was whoever had money it didn't matter whether they were on the left or the right if they had money sorry you can you can afford art <laughs> so that's what that was and then the extraordinary rendition show which is one of the ones that kind of upset somebody before i did it in omaha um i did it back at a, a sierra art uh, foundation um, when I lived in Nevada and did a version of the show before I uh, um, joined uh, Doug Hako. Doug Hako and I have, have uh, collaborated on a lot of stuff. So before we were working on that show together, I'd kind of done a separate one earlier. Um, so the Extraordinary Rendition show was about the United States practice of Extraordinary Rendition, which is basically having one country invade another one to capture a particular person, or actually the United States might be the ones actually doing the capturing. Um, the important part is that it's one country that we have no control over. I'll go ahead and say it that way. And then another country, we'd hand them, the people off to another country who could torture them because, you know, we don't torture. So then they can get the information that we want and the United States doesn't get pegged as uh, one of these countries that tortures prisoners. But it's even worse than that because that person would get essentially kidnapped from a country. Nobody would know about it. The family wouldn't know. Nobody, just the person disappears. And unfortunately, what often would happen to that individual was they'd end up getting killed afterwards. They get the information and then, you know, that was it. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very extreme 
I'm going to call it a warfare technique <laughs> um, of trying to, you know, capture people and get information, et cetera. And it took a while for it to become obvious that we were deeply involved in that practice. Well, at that show in Reno, I just talked about extraordinary rendition a little bit in the statement. And this guy who, I can't remember if he was a vet or he had a son who was a vet, um, was really upset about that. And his granddaughter was there. And he said, my granddaughter's seeing this. She sees that statement. And, you know, you can't talk about these. He didn't use false narratives, but that's essentially what he was saying. And I said, well, no, extraordinary rendition is a real thing. He's like, prove it. What are you talking about? And so I try to cite some things, but I couldn't really, you know, I don't have URLs rattling in the <laughs> in my head that I can just cite off. Um, so I was trying to explain it to him. And each time he just got angrier. I mean, he was yelling at me at one point um, in the gallery. And I just tried to very calmly explain to him, well, you know, these things are real. I mean, I'm not making this up. It's, it's actually something that I want to reflect on, you know, understand it better, et cetera. And, and all of his comments essentially came down to you you must prove what you're talking about if you can't prove what you're talking about then you shouldn't be doing it you shouldn't um this shouldn't be an art show it shouldn't you shouldn't be putting this out there etc to me it was really an interesting conversation i wasn't upset with it i was more kind of curious why he was so upset and how i might be able to adapt the show um another person that i've collaborated a lot with is justin kemmerling he's a designer and ton of just does amazing stuff he has a lot of social justice components to his work so it was kind of a natural to join up with him. So I approached Justin. I said, you know what? We need two different parts to this show. So the original show, everything was kind of, you could see it all. There was nothing hidden behind a curtain. But what I was explaining to Justin was I'm, I'm going to have a hidden space and I want that to be kind of this government space, real stuff, real research. And I had a, a, one of my colleagues do some research um, on it, um, Carol Zugner, do some research on, from the CIA websites, anything, that, any information that was found out there. And then in the front part of the show... I just asked Justin, can you do some, you know, some nice propaganda work? <laughs> you know, this is a good thing we're doing because, you know, get cheap gas and double cheeseburgers and whatever. But there was that pamphlet in back, or it was actually a booklet. And we printed thousands of these things so people could just grab one, take it home with them. And they could even download a PDF version of it. And it would take you to those sites. It would show you what we know. It turns out. Even with all the great research that was done, we were barely scratching the surface. It was actually much worse than we knew, which, of course, isn't surprising. But um, but it was interesting to do it that way, to put in all this information, um, which I really didn't plan on doing originally. But I actually really liked that part of the show. I liked the fact that things were footnoted and you could actually, you know, read up on these things. One in one in nuclear attack.
So I wanted to know what would an attendee have experienced? So somebody that would attend the Extraordinary Rendition, and I'm just, just going to talk about the Bemis Underground version, and it was the biggest version of that show. The idea was that people thought, well, I think, I assume they thought, that they were going to see a show of drawings. They were these large drawings, four foot by six foot kind of portrait things. And we kind of, you know, let some of those images out so people knew um, that they were going to be in the show. What they didn't know was anything about the surveillance system or about the performance that was happening in back or any of those other things. And because actually the website did this too, um, both the website and your experience at the show was to put you on your heels immediately. Um, what happened was they went to the show, again, thinking they were going to a traditional art show, and they were stopped from entering the show and asked all sorts of weird questions. Some of them were kind of pressing about something that you know, you had to answer. And other ones were banal questions. Doug would have his performers ask things like, what's your favorite color? They'd say, green. And say, all right, stand over there. <laughs> and they could, they didn't get to go in. Somebody else would go in and the other person would sit there waiting. Um, and, you know, weird stuff like that would happen. Then you go inside and in the underground, they had a bar there first, which is where everybody, everybody wanted to get their wine and their beer. But when you were getting your alcohol, if you were paying attention the um, bartender was throwing a pill in really fast just before they gave you the drink, um, and which would make a lot of people wonder, why did you throw a pill in my drink? And a lot of people didn't actually ask. They just thought, okay, and drank it and just walked away. Um, and then other people would say, what did you just put in my drink? And I told the performers, like, if somebody gets upset and really wants to know, just let them know. Because they were sugar pills. It was just a little tiny uh, thing of sugar. You know, let them know just so nobody would panic or get upset. But some people, even when they found out she could show the little bottle and everything, that they were just little tiny sugar pills. I mean, super, super tiny, like baby aspirin. And then they got past that, and they thought they were getting in the show. And then they were fingerprinted and photographed. <laughs> they still didn't get to enter the show. So everybody was on their heels by the time they got into the show. And then if you got once you got in, you just saw the drawings. That was the only thing you saw right away. And then I had, it's kind of a... Uh, a group show in a way because I, I invited a whole bunch of people kind of at the last minute but invited a whole bunch of people to add some things to the show to kind of fill it out a little more so there were some other things besides just the drawings but those were the first things you saw and then there were yellow footprints on the ground and a red velvet rope in front of the drawings so it seemed like oh you know this is the best viewing point and oh I don't want to get too close to the drawing because the drawing is so you know precious or whatever but really all that was doing the rope, the footprints, etc., was so people would stand in a very specific spot because every drawing had a camera focused on them and people were being recorded every second that they were in the space. They were being recorded and downloaded to a hard drive. So every movement, every, <laughs> and, um, but people still didn't know necessarily when they're walking through the show that they were, uh, they had this kind of level of surveillance going on. But then when they s snuck around the back part of the show, they could see all the monitors, um, videos, um, a whole bunch of performers dressed up to look like, you know, G-men, whatever. <laughs> and they were writing things down, crossing people's names off, um, scribbling things down as they were watching all the monitors. And, and uh, yeah, so I don't – you'd have to ask somebody else what their experience was. But hopefully they were confused at first and then maybe enlightened a little bit and then maybe angry um, because of some of the things that were happening within the show. But kept them thinking while they were there. Well, I think that's an important segue right there to the current exhibition that you're working on, which is a version 2.0 of something you'd already established a few years back, the Museum of Alternative History. Mm -hmm. And it is very much about having the audience think. Mm -hmm. 
And that seems to be a philosophy that underpins a lot of your work is is whether people are offended or disgusted or thrilled or delighted, mm. you push them to think about an issue. Right. So maybe talk a little bit about the Museum of Alternative History, and then perhaps we can talk about how people have reacted to that show. Right. Yeah, so the Museum of Alternative History it was, it was actually something that I was thinking about doing for a long time and never really figured out the best way to do it or even the best reasons to, to actually pursue it. I didn't want to just simply make fake stuff. Ironically, I'd lived in um, Africa for a while and we were building uh, what's called the Lost City. So we were building this city that supposedly had been destroyed by a volcano and this billionaire had uncovered it. It was just a big water park and everything else. But we were building all this stuff from scratch. M massive things, 60 foot tall waterfalls. If you went and looked at it, um, online. It's it's pretty crazy, all the stuff that we were doing there. And I thought, oh, well, this is really interesting, doing this fake stuff. And then when I first moved up back to Omaha, I'm actually originally from here, but I left for a long time. When I first moved back, um, that's when the lead jungle was being built. So I actually helped build the lead jungle at the time, the world's largest artificial indoor rainforest, and then decided to go to graduate school. And I started thinking about all these artificial environments and, and um, almost did it in grad school, didn't do it then. And uh, so this idea has always been rattling around in the back of my head. And it wasn't until, actually there were two things that gave birth to this. One was a guy named Don McElroy down in Texas. His Texas school board was changing history books, textbooks. So they could put their own political bias and things like that into it. That, and as well as intelligent design being science, even though they're obviously two very different things. So. I thought, well, wait a minute, they have a lot of power to change textbooks to include this kind of um, sometimes disinformation, misinformation um, into these textbooks. And then the other thing that kind of gave birth to it was another artist named Troy Muller who uh, came to my studio. We were talking about doing a show together. It was kind of a joke because people kept confusing us, you know, back when I had a little more hair and back when I <laughs> looked a little younger. Um, now he looks like my kid or something. <laughs> I look so old. But um, so that's what he was thinking of doing. But he had this book, this old science book from the 50s. He just brought it because he was showing me an example of some of the things that he was working on. And I kept looking at that book while he was talking and thinking, no, wait, Here's the show. It's that history textbook that the Don Macro and the school board's changing. What if the show, what if it was a show that talked about, so I just kind of had all these things running through my head. And within like five or 10 minutes, I had the whole thing conceived and created in my head. And then finally stopped Troy and I like pushed the book in his face. I'm like, no, 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 this is a show. But it kind of made sense, this idea of, in fact, originally it was also going to be a book. I was going to try to produce, and it still might be, who knows. Um, but the idea of, putting this work into what feels like a museum of natural history, using that format, that context to put all this work and then kind of getting things wrong. It, originally, the first idea was what if it, the museum felt like it was in the 50s and it got everything wrong? Where's our flying cars? Where's our whatever? Um, but that was too kind of the, like the one-liner of the other things that I was working on. And I was interested in these bigger concepts, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and why um, are we willing to accept certain things and reject other things and um, does it fit into our personal bias that we already have, etc. So I got kind of got rid of the 50s style thing and just thought about it as a museum. And the first version of the show, which was with the RNG gallery um, years ago, was kind of all fake. I brought a bunch of writers and artists together and said, here's the concept. At the time, I was kind of worried that I was 
wasn't going to have time for art anymore. So I was thinking, well, rather than making it a solo show, I'll just do another group show. I've had a lot of fun collaborating with people. And it worked, and it was fun, and, I th and it seemed to be well-received and all of that. But, um, but once people realized everything was fake, that critical thinking stopped. It was just a joke. So when the new show um, was being conceived, and the, again, this was years later, there's a big gap in between. I was going to kind of continue the project, and then other stuff happened, and I stopped um, doing art and things like that. That I realized, you know what, there needs to be more real stuff in it. So even though the first show had a lot of fake stuff, I asked people to start with a kernel of truth and then run with it. Um, this time I made sure a lot of real things are in the show and far more kernels <laughs> of truth were in the show. And, and that way people were forced to think, all right, well, if this is real, does that mean this is real? Well, this has to be fake, so that must be fake. So give, give maybe two or three examples and, and maybe of, you can lead into your own Berlin Wall too. <laughs> the Berlin Wall, yeah. So um, the easiest one to talk about, um, one, because it's my piece, but also because it, it fits it so well, is um, the butterflies that are in the show. Um, nothing super fancy. They're just kind of fake butterflies and, and real butterflies. But, um, but when I tell people, think of something where there's a kernel of truth. And the first show, by the way, I should say this because... In the first show, I was going to do something with butterflies, but it was more a butterfly flaps its wings and sets off a hurricane on the other side of the earth, that kind of concept. But that felt too forced, so I ended up not doing it in the first show. Well, this show came up, and I was reading an article. I've been really interested in CRISPR technology, the uh, technology of you know, splicing DNA and you know removing bad DNA or fixing it, replacing it, whatever, um, which was really interesting to me. It's mind-boggling, some of the things that they're doing um, with CRISPR. But... Um, 
but I read an article where some scientists were using CRISPR technology, and there was probably something deeper to this, but this is, was my takeaway. <laughs> they were using CRISPR technology to edit butterfly DNA, and then they were watching what happened to the patterns on the wings. So what, what happened is they were um, editing the DNA, and the piece was born the second I read that article. So all I did, I took all that real stuff butterflies, the CRISPR technology, the fact that they were actually editing butterfly DNA, etc. And I just added one more element to it, and that was who's funding this, which is often one of the questions that you hear, whether it's climate science or whatever it is that you want. So I decided, all right, well, this is being funded by corporations like Apple and Nike and whoever in order to put their logos onto the butterfly wings so they could, these butterflies who were useless before, I mean, they're just fluttering around, not contributing anything to society. Now they can contribute to capitalist society by being little flying billboards with everybody's, you know, logos on them. So that obviously is the fake part, but it, it's kind of fun to base something on this, on these real things and then add that little twist and, and it's one that's not, it's not a hard jump to make to think, wait a minute, would they actually do that? If they could start changing butterfly wings, could they put their logo on it? Would they? <laughs> so it was those kinds of questions that I wanted to kind of ask and play around with. So this idea of using art as a way to push people towards reflecting on a social issue, mm. a social cause or concern or whatever it happens to be, it can put people into a difficult position. Mm. And, and so I, I want to hear a little bit more about your general view on using art that way mm. and maybe using this example from one element of the Museum of Alternative History about the Berlin Wall project. Yeah, so um, I actually like that part of things. I like to kind of push um, those boundaries and things like that, especially conceptually and, and about topics that are um, can be difficult. It didn't feel right to push it too far with Kaneko. You know, I mean, you've got donors and you've got other considerations and things like that. So I'm probably a little more careful there than I might be in the next version, which hopefully would happen right as this 2020 election cycle is happening. So politics and things like that might make a much bigger showing in the next iteration of this show than this one did. Um, but this one was pretty subtle on um, some of those types of topics. The Berlin Wall Project was here's all the real stuff i this is all real <laughs> i lived in london in 89 and 90 and when checkpoint charlie opened berlin wasn't much of a track from london i could just take a quick little flight so we went over to berlin and we hammered chunks off the wall and we engaged in the party and stuff so I, all of those pieces of the berlin wall that are in the show i know they're real because i collected them myself from the wall as it was coming down and I thought, you know, this would be interesting to because people were keeping these things as interesting historical uh, relics. And I thought, you know, when you think about what was happening then or you think about um, the Holocaust, you think about some really horrific things, how can you make that even worse? What's, what's something you can do to kind of that seems plausible but um, is disturbing? And the, what popped into my head was the idea that People were ending up in the walls. Um, their remains were somehow ending up in the construction of the wall itself. Um, so that, so everything was real up to that point until that. And the presentation was done in a way with what Doug did. So as part of the show, mm -hmm. there was a public event where experts this, were <laughs> exactly. So there was a there was a public event as part of the exhibition itself, mm -hmm. and the public were invited 
to attend a lecture about a particular <laughs> related to an installation in the mm -hmm. exhibition itself and, right. and, and, and hence the alternative history yeah. yes so hence your berlin wall pieces right. are, are forming part of this right. larger scientific project that is a subject of a presentation right uh the the ostensible subject of a presentation to the audience right and i already forgot doug's fake name but <laughs> doug had a name dr Brandon Bradley Hampton. Bradley Hampton. Oh, look at you. Very nice. <laughs> but um, he also, he didn't just do that as a presentation there. That was actually the opening, the reception for the members only reception and for um, the next opening where we had a whole bunch of experts there. Doug Hako had a couple of dozen. I'm probably exaggerating there. Um, performers actually they were experts in different pieces. They would hang around different parts of the exhibit telling people about you know, the actual piece, but, you know, mostly BS, but, um, but yeah, it was just kind of interesting to see how many people, when they would question, um, whether something was real or not, or if they would bother to question it, um, knowing that it was an art show, a lot of people knew that the last iteration existed and knew things were fake, but they were finding a lot of real things. So they were trying to understand what was real, what wasn't. Yeah. It was just an interesting kind of entertaining way. But, um, but I think, I think what we really need to do is have a post museum of alternative history, um, discussion and actually talk about what happened and why, and, and actually discuss those concepts of cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and that kind of stuff. So my final question then is, hmm. is, is what's next? What do you, what happens next? What, what project are you working on? I think I'm going to continue this one a little bit further. I'm going to take it a little further. I'm actually looking for venues in other cities. Um, I would really like to try to put on another um, iteration of this project in 2020, the summer of 2020. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if we can find a, a good venue um, in a city that's hopefully not too far because it's a lot to deal with. <laughs> I mean, we were lucky that, you know, the one that the Kaneko um, – uh, I, I, sometimes I say allowed us to, <laughs> to be in there, that, but invited us because uh, I mean it was a pretty crazy project, and they were really um, you know supportive and everything. And we got the Jocelyn Art Museum to give us um, pedestals, and we got the Durham Museum to give us loan us pedestals and things. Um, Material Design loaned us this big flat you know moonscape thing, which is really cool. <laughs> so a whole bunch of people were just loaning us things and their time and energy, and um, to replicate all of that in another city somewhere else, I think is going to be a bigger challenge than I might realize it it worked in omaha um can i do it from omaha in a city like chicago I'm, I'm not sure yet but that's kind of what's in the back of my head right now and a couple other films that i'm conceiving of right now that i need to figure out a way to pull off <laughs> those are the next projects well this is fair warning to listeners then that you should be preparing to have your biases probed <laughs> and your dissonances <laughs> <laughs> dissected <laughs> right. but oh, and the barf bag project is ending and, and the, I'm not sure, the barf bag project is ending so if anybody wants barf bags they're gonna have to get in on that soon because that one's disappearing soon. okay so maybe that <laughs> uh, that can that can, that can be uh, that can be a prize to uh, a prize to <laughs> listeners uh, the first person to um, request uh, some a set of bags. barf bags on on our Facebook page <laughs> at lives radio show get a big is going to get a handful of barf bags go. what a prize <laughs> Long. 
Lives Radio Show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Tim Guthrie. Thank you, Tim, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was fun. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. 